the things that we immerse ourselves with are the very things that shape us, form us into who we are. Many of you have heard me quote the line before that we are the average of the five people that we spend the most time with. The people we hang out with, the music we listen to, the shows we watch on TV, the social media we consume, it all shapes us. It rewires our brain to bring us into alignment with whatever worldview is on display in front of us. Now, my goal this morning in this message is to provide a gospel-centered, we just went through the gospel-centered life, so you're going to be probably hearing the gospel-centered as a descriptor for a little while, gospel-centered biblical portrait of giving, right, what some in the church would call tithing. But I want to acknowledge from at the out front, at, at the, the start, that it feels like an uphill battle. Discussing giving in church feels like a faux pas because so many churches over the years have abused and manipulated people to give in certain ways that many churchgoers are rightfully skeptical of anyone talking about giving. But additionally, based on what I just said a moment ago, many of us are conditioned to not want to orient our lives around what the Bible teaches about giving. I'm going to stand here and speak for 30, probably a little closer to 35 minutes on the subject. And like I said earlier, I I usually venture into this topic about once a year, because I think it's important. It's something the Bible does teach on. We don't don't want to talk about it too much, but we we don't want to neglect it either. So 30, 35 minutes, I'll be up here. But daily, you are all bombarded with messages that attempt to rewire your understanding of your finances and encourage you of how you should use them. Let me give you an example. So the Steelers are playing the Chargers tonight, primetime game. These primetime games are killing my sleep schedules. I cannot handle this. I, I, yes, I, I can't stay up, so I probably won't watch the whole game. The average NFL game has just over nine minutes of commercials per quarter. So let's just stay up. Suggest, let's just say you stay up to watch the entire game. That means you've been blasted with over 36 of people advocating for how you should allocate your resources. And that doesn't even include the lengthy commercials during halftime. So in one football game, you are receiving a greater input of data than what you're getting from me over the next half hour. Even if football's not your thing, you're still getting barraged whether you watch The Bachelor, The Real Housewives of Orange County, or the 11 o'clock news. These sources shape how we think about money. So I feel like I'm starting from a deficit. But over the last two, three months, we've looked at the gospel-centered life, how the gospel permeates every facet of our lives, right? If it helps us deal with mission and forgiveness and conflict, then surely it has something to say about how we use our financial resources. But before we get to our meat, I want to lay out our foundation for us this morning. The purpose of this message is not about judgment. It's not about trying to manipulate or coerce someone to do what they don't want to do. Now, I believe in the church there is a place to bring hard truths a place to bring conviction for us. But as we've seen over the last two to three months, the goal of the Christian journey is not just forced compliance because it's the quote-unquote right thing to do. The goal of the gospel is seeing inner transformation, heart transformation from God, 
for our lives, which changes our underlying attitudes and behaviors and motivations. Mixing with that the grace of Jesus Christ to carry us through the in-between, where the ought and what we want to do don't connect. So I hope that, that you can understand as the, that that's the foundation. My goal is not to force you to do something you don't want to do, but to paint a picture of what I believe God desires from us and encourage, if we're not there yet, to go to the Lord, to invite Him to work on our hearts. So I've got four primary points. First, we're going to look at some of the Old Testament foundations for tithing, briefly. Secondly, I'm going to try to answer the question, does tithing still apply to us in the New Testament? Third, what does tithing teach us? In other words, why is it valuable? And lastly, some practical, concrete steps to get us on the road to obedience in this area of life. So let's, say, so let's start with what the Old Testament says about the subject of giving. Um, I'm going to use giving and tithing interchangeably this morning. They're not exactly the same, um, but just for simplicity's sake so you don't hear the same word over and over and over again from me. But the meaning of the word tithe is literally one-tenth. Right? It was the practice of giving one-tenth or 10% of yearly gains. Now, in antiquity, that was agri- agricultural produce, and they gave it to the Lord. Centuries before the giving of the law. So the giving of the law is given after God takes the Hebrew people, escorts them out of Egypt under the leadership of Moses. God gives the law. This is how you should live. But centuries before that, there are stories of two individuals who honor the Lord with their contributions. And I'm going to go pretty quickly. We're not going to look at every single reference. So if you want to write them down and look at them on your own time, you're welcome to do so. So the first is Genesis 14 verses 19 through 20. It tells the story of Abram, later renamed more famously known as Abraham. But Abram rescues his, lef- his nephew Lot from a foreign king. And after this battle, after this skirmish, Abram appears before Melchizedek, someone we don't know a whole lot about, but was important in that time and is highlighted in the book of, Hebrew- yeah, book of Hebrews as well. It's a figure who is described as a priest of the Most High God. Melchizedek pronounces a blessing upon Abram, and the second half of verse 20 says that Abraham gave him, Melchizedek, this this priest of the Lord Most High, a tenth of everything, a tithe. Fast forward two generations with Abraham's grandson, Jacob. Now, Jacob was, uh, he was one of the pillars of, you know, the patriarchs in the Old Testament, but he was quite the subversive trickster in his youth. He, he's a little rebellious. He steals his older twin brothers. They were twins, but he was the younger of the two. Steals his older brother's birthright, and then when their father is on the deathbed, he steals his blessing as well. And his brother Esau is furious with him. He's out for blood. So Jacob flees to the land of his mother's family to escape, but also while he's there to find a spouse. As he's en route, he has this powerful vision of God, where God is basically reconfirming the blessings that he had given to his grandfather, Abraham. And he says, Jacob, these are true for you as well. And Jacob awoke. He said this, and this comes, I'm going to read this one, but this comes from Genesis 28, verses 20 to 22. It says that Jacob then made a vow saying, if God will be with me and keep me in this way that I go, and will give me bread to eat, and clothing to wear, 
so that I come again to my father's house in peace. Then the Lord shall be my God, and this stone, which I set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. They called it Bethel. Bethel literally means house of God, but that's a little Hebrew for you. And all that you give me, I will give to you a full tenth. So Jacob is making a vow that if God's going to be with him at this next stage of his journey, that he is going to give a tenth of everything that he earns back to the Lord. And so both of these examples show that centuries before, I mean, we're talking like 400, 500 years before the law was even given through Moses, that there was a practice and an observation of giving to God, and specifically this tithe. Let's fast forward to Leviticus. Here we see the ramifications of this process. It's at the very end of the book. Leviticus chapter 27, verses 30 to 32 say this. Every tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or the fruit of the trees, is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. If a man wishes to redeem some of his tithe, he shall add a fifth of it. And every tithe of the herds and flocks, every tenth animal of all that pass under the herdsman's staff shall be holy to the Lord. This law states that 10% of everything of the land and everything of the herds and flocks belonged to God. What Abraham and Jacob observed is now becoming a part of the law and is meant to guide the people of God in the ways in which they worshipped him. All right, last Old Testament passage for this section. Numbers 18, 21 to 26. This passage in Numbers is used to point out how that tithe was supposed to be used. That the tithe went to the Levites. Now, the Levites were one of the 12 tribes of Israel, but this tribe was set apart because they didn't have any land. They didn't have land that they could work as their own. They didn't build businesses, in essence. But their purpose was to serve the Lord in the priestly duties of the nation of Israel. So the tithe... 10% from the surrounding tribes went to compensate the Levites. And then we see at the end of that passage in Numbers that even the Levites were to take a tithe of the tithe that was given to them and that that was meant to go back to the Lord. So let me make a couple comments about these passages before we move on. By a show of hands, how many of you own herds of cattle, groves of trees? None of you? It's on almost, right? No. I know we've got some gardeners in here, so they're, you know, you might have a little bit of of produce from the land. So if we don't own, you know, cattle, do these passages apply to us? Does it mean that none of it applies to us? Now, of course not, because what we have in view here in the Hebrew understanding of the law was that the Hebrew people were to give from their financial security. Right? They didn't have paychecks, they didn't have bank accounts, they didn't accrue interest. They provided for themselves and their needs with the fruit of the land. Right? If you were a farmer and you didn't own cattle, you might use your produce to barter with your neighbor to get some meat. So while there isn't a direct correlation, you know, it's not a one-to-one correspondence to the 21st century business model, I do think that what's clear here is that these are culturally relevant symbols of economics that would change as culture and economy and banking evolved. 
Now, secondly, I know we didn't spend much time on the passages themselves, but if you go back, if you look on those on your own and for the ones that I read, notice who the recipient is. I know it says it's going to the Levites in that Numbers passage, but all the others say that the tithes are going to the Lord. And this is really important because when we give, we're not giving to the church, and we're not giving to Compassion International or your favorite parachurch ministry. Ultimately, we're giving to the Lord. And so that has some ramifications for us in terms of, you know, if we get to determine how the, the, the ultimate recipient, right, the Levites, the, the, the churches, the compassion, whatever, you know, do we get to determine how those tithes are allocated? But we must first and foremost remember that our gifts are not to institutions, but our gifts go to God. Now, having addressed some of the Old Testament background, the next question is, does any of this still apply to us? In light of the gospel of Jesus Christ, do we need to follow this model of giving 10% of our salary to the Lord? We've seen many times that there are different ways to understand the Old Testament laws. It applies to us. If you guys love to eat bacon, you're not obeying portions of the Hebraic law. Now, in the past, I've broken these, these, and it's not just me. This isn't original to me. Uh, This is, for centuries, they've broken it down this way. But three categories of law that I think are really helpful. The moral law, the ceremonial law, and the civic law. Of those three, only the moral law continues to be pertinent in our daily lives. Jesus fulfilled the ceremonial law, things like circumcision, things like dietary restrictions, which is why we aren't obligated to, you know, we can eat shrimp. I don't like shrimp, but if you like shrimp, you can eat it, guilt-free. And we're no longer a theocratic nation-state. So the civic law, things like build these fences around the top of your houses so people don't fall off of them, it doesn't apply to us in the same way. But what about tithing? Which of those categories does tithing fit into? Now, before I answer that question, I think it's important to acknowledge how seriously God takes this subject. Malachi 3.8 says this, Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. So the prophet correlates not giving of our tithes, not giving of our contributions to robbing God, committing theft against God. And the very next verse that follows that says that as a result of this, God is going to be cursing the nations for withholding their resources from him. So as we consider the relevancy of tithing in a New Testament framework, we ought to recognize how seriously God takes the act of giving. He equates it with stealing. Now, one of the ways as we read through the Old and New Testament, one of the ways that we can determine if the Hebraic law continues to be binding to us is to see if it is restated in some way in the New Testament. Like the Ten Commandments. All the Ten Commandments we see restated, kind of reaffirmed and validated in the New Testament. So does Jesus have anything to say about money and its place in our lives? all the time. Now, if you were raised in the church, you may have heard it quoted that Jesus talked about money more than any other subject. I don't actually think that that is true. 
His primary focus of teaching was on the kingdom of God. That is, that is the first and foremost element of what Jesus was passionate about. But nonetheless, he addressed money quite often. Clearly a close second or third in that. What we see most often from Jesus in the Gospels is that he takes our understanding of the law, and rather than diminish it, he expands it. Right? Take his teachings in the Sermon on the Mount. Right? You've heard it said, don't commit murder. But I tell you that anyone who calls someone a fool is liable to the hell of fire. Have you ever called someone a fool? Then, then you're basically guilty of murder, is what he's saying. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But if you've looked at someone lustfully, you've already committed adultery in your heart. To Jesus, the law was not the end-all, be-all to determine who was righteous and not. Rather, they were guideposts meant to showcase the way of life that God wants us to live. Right? Don't just, it's not just like we'll avoid telling white lies so that you don't bear false witness, but what does it look like to live a life that is consistent with truth and integrity? He's expanding our vision of what it means to obey these things. Let's take the story of the Gospel of Mark. This comes from Mark 12, 41 to 44. It says, And he, Jesus, again, Mark 12, 41 to 44, Jesus sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came in and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, this poor woman has put in more than all those who were contributing in the offering box. For they all have contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything that she had, all she had to live on. Now, I don't think Jesus here is concerned with arbitrary formulas to determine how much we ought to give. We're going to look at it, I'm going to mention in a minute, but you know, the rich young ruler where he says, sell all that you have and give to the poor, I don't think that's meant to be a universal statement for everyone. But I think instead what he's highlighting is the heart attitude. What does it mean for us to be so captivated by God, so enamored with Jesus, that we give our treasures in proportion to that affection that we have for him? Now, I I have find these words of a former pastor of mine a bit dramatic, but I think they fit with the teaching of Jesus. And he used to say, the question, question isn't about how much do we give, but how much do we dare keep. There are countless more examples of the Gospels. Right? Jesus validated the Pharisees' practice of tithing goods and spices, but at the same time he's chastising them for missing the weightier purposes of the law, like compassion and justice. Just mention the rich young ruler who Jesus instructed to give all he had to the poor. Time and time again, Jesus is showing that our attitudes towards our resources are important in God's economy. God cares about how we think about our possessions. But this is where grace comes in. 2 Corinthians 9, 6-7. This is a great verse about giving to help us understand this process, to understand this heart attitude in the New Testament. 2 Corinthians 9, 6-7. speaks eloquently of the place of giving in the Christian life. Paul says, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully 
will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. The goal of the Christian life is not just to do something because we're supposed to, that's legalism. We're called to experience transformation in our lives until piece by piece we are a greater, more full reflection of Jesus Christ himself. So do I believe that we ought to be giving a tithe of our resources and income? Absolutely. Does this earn us one extra iota of credit in God's kingdom? Not at all. God wants us to be giving, not reluctantly, not under compulsion, not because we're, guilt, you know, because we're feeling guilty, but out of the joy of our heart. And so my goal this morning is not to bring guilt on your lives so that, so that you start giving, but instead to kind of try to bring that, you know, that message of conviction to your heart that if you find that you don't want to give or you're struggling with giving, to encourage you to take it before God, to encourage him to open up your heart so that your heart would align with his heart on the subject. Now, just in case you weren't convinced by the biblical foundation of giving, there, I think there are some real benefits to our faith when we give. Maybe we would be more motivated to give if we saw and realized that giving as a discipline can really bless us in our Christian lives. What does tithing teach us? Or put another way, why is it valuable? In short, giving helps free us from the tyranny of stuff. Our culture is predicated on consumerism, and we've been discipled into ways of thinking that our worth is based upon what we own, what tax bracket we are in, how big our house is, what kind of car we drive. Are we wearing this year's fashions or last year's? This is, why we, this is what I started with, that we are inundated with messages trying to make us insecure. That is the goal of marketing, to make you feel insecure in your present life, that it will not be complete unless we buy whatever product is being offered, whether it's the prescription drugs, what college or technical program we could, should attend, how we could get rich quick by parlaying the football game this afternoon. They are trying to get us to use our resources for their benefit. Instead, the discipline of giving, because it is a discipline, right? Giving is not something that you stumble upon accidentally. It's, there's intentionality with it. But the discipline of giving is a rebellious cry of, sub, of subversion to our culture. Giving helps us to cultivate contentment in our lives. There have been plenty of times that I have struggled with how much Sarah and I give. I mean, like, that 10% of our salaries would be really helpful to cover daycare costs or the purchase of a new car or some home improvement or an extra activity for our, our kids. You know, one of the things that Elizabeth this year was talking about really wanting to do was horseback riding. There are a whole lot of reasons we couldn't do it. I was like, I'm not driving to Apollo multiple times a week just so that you can ride some horses. But it's a really expensive hobby. I much prefer coaching her in soccer, which is like $150 for the year, right? 
maybe some extra equipment on top of that. If we had that extra 10%, maybe there are things like that that we could offer to our kids. Because as a parent, right, you want to give your kids what they want. But giving by saying no to things cultivates a heart of contentment. It is completely countercultural to give and thereby limiting your stuff that you're able to, give, to, to acquire as a result. Tithing makes it near impossible to keep up with the Joneses. And this is the first step of developing a heart of contentment. That what we have, who we are right now, is enough. And God, that's what we sang about at the beginning, I'll give thanks. I don't need a fancy car. I don't need the new Air Jordans. I don't need to vacation to the Outer Banks every year to have worth. Intentionally choosing to go with less because you are giving your resources elsewhere helps you be content with the things that the Lord has provided for you. Similar to that, giving helps cultivate a spirit of gratitude for what you have. Part of giving is a recognition that all things belong first to God, right? Contrary to popular opinion, everything we have isn't ours. It's just on loan to us from God. That doesn't, that, I'm not dismissing the hard work that we have put in our careers. We may have worked hard, but it's not purely by our own effort. Even the most successful people, I know there's, it's one of these memes that was going around Facebook about, um, like, six of the most wealthiest people, Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk, all of them had at some point in time got grants or loans from family members, got bailed out by family members of the government. All of them required a little bit of luck in the process too. Maybe instead of the word luck, we want to use providence. When we give, we can be grateful for the things that we do have because the Lord is the one who has provided it. For us. But lastly, giving is difficult. Now, my family gives, I, I don't say this to brag, I'm not trying to pat myself on the back, but I want to lead by example. So, my family gives the full tithe, 10% off of the gross income, not net, but that might be another conversation for another day. And sometimes when you do that, you feel the pinch. God provides us the opportunity to deepen our faith in God when we give. Do we take Jesus at his word that if God cares for us and feeds little birds, that he's going to take care of us as well? I think a lot of us say with our mouths that we believe that, but are we willing to allow ourselves to be in a situation where we need to rely on that? Do we ever find ourselves in a space where we are forced to rely on the provision and faithfulness of God. Those with steady salary jobs often don't need to struggle to understand where the next meal is going to come from or which utility bill is going to get paid this month. Now, I'm not saying that we should desire or pursue that type of uncertainty. However, there is a richness to faith that comes from being in a spot where you are helpless and God providentially comes in and provides for you in the 11th hour. I've heard so many stories of folks who have struggled and have basically put God to the test that he's going to provide for them, and he does. 
when we are in a position where we are compelled to take God at his word that he's a provider, can be a boon at cultivating robust faith of what it means. I know this is an aside and not specifically about money, but I, I, you know, five years ago, six years ago at, at this point in time, I was going through a pretty significant transition. I knew I was leaving my, my job, but I didn't know what was next. And, you know, I'm going through all these thinkings of how am I going to provide for the family? Are we going to have to move out of our house, move in with my in-laws, you know? What is going to have to happen in this process? Applying to job after job after job, getting denied, denied, denied for a variety of reasons, some of which seemed inexplicable. And that was a really, really hard time in my life. But I would also argue that that was some of the time that I felt closest to God because I knew I could not do anything to provide for myself. I did everything I could, and I wasn't getting those open doors that I needed. I'd like to think that God was preparing me for all of you by opening up this option. But again, that's a story for another time. All right. I lost my place. There it is. My hope in this message is, is uh, that if you haven't previously considered giving, the discipline of giving, that you are right now, or that if you've given before, that you're cons- considering finding a way to increase to that scriptural baseline of 10%. So how do you get there? Here are a couple concrete ideas to get you started. For starter, the scriptures teach of the tithe being of our, there's a word that they used a lot in the, in the Hebrew law. It talks about giving of our first fruits. That's why I made that comment about gross salary versus net. We're not supposed to give to God from our leftovers after the government has taken their share. And be sure, they had taxes in the ancient world too, so that's not something unique to our culture. Oftentimes, when we think about giving, where we start is we think about our essentials. Shelter, food, clothing. Things that are necessary and are good to you know, make a plan to have. But very quickly from there, we begin to prioritize our entertainment. You know, our Netflix subscription, our Hulu subscription, our HBO Max subscription, our whatever you want to keep adding to that. Eating out, Starbucks, a whole lot of other non-essentials. And then with whatever money's left over, if there is any, can go to God. Listen to Proverbs 3. Proverbs 3, 9 to 10. Now, I'm, I'm hesitant to share this. It makes me a little uncomfortable to share this because I don't want us to force a formula out of it but listen to God's inspired wisdom. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. God instructs us to honor him with our first fruits and he is going to come through, is what he says. He will ensure that we have enough to eat and drink. Notice it doesn't say anything about expanding your land, you know, but your barns will be full, your vats will be full. We'll make sure, he will make sure that our needs are met. Maybe not all at once, but our needs. The number one way that I was, because I, you know, I've talked about money a lot. Money is something that I have a lot of control over. I have a lot of insecurity over. And so, the number one way that I was able to unlock this in my life was by budgeting. There are, I, I'm not going to ask you to, to raise your hands, but think about this, whether or not you budget, because budgeting is so crucial 
to allowing your money to work for you and not the other way around. When Sarah and I prepared our budget, we prepare in advance how we are going to allocate our money. Before our paychecks went to any of these other buckets that we set aside, we have our bucket for the Lord. And what that allows you to do is it allows you to give from the front, not the back. You give out of your abundance, not your leftovers. And let me say this about giving. I've heard some pastors say that you have to give a tenth, right? That 10% to your local church and anything else you want to give to has to be above and beyond that. I don't know that I see the scriptural evidence for that. So if you've, if you've heard that before, I don't know that I agree with that. The rule of thumb that I use in terms of how we give, right? Because there's no Levites anymore. I mean, I guess I'm kind of like a priest, right? As a pastor of a church, but we, we don't have this um, state-sponsored, you know, theocratic way to worship the Lord. But what I use as a rule of thumb is that our giving goes to the Lord's work, to kingdom work, what I call. And so what that means for us, and again, I'm not telling you how, to, how you need to allocate your resources. I'm just telling us best practices of what we do as a family. Right? The funds that we set aside aren't going to go to United Way. They're not going to go to the Greater Pittsburgh Food Bank. Those are both great institutions. It's not that we don't give to those places, but we don't give out of our tithe to those places. Because Sarah and I want to give our funds to places that are working to partner with God to see the kingdom of God advance and revealed in the places that they operate. Now, my, highest, my highly biased opinion is that the largest chunk of that should go to the local church. That's what we do. But Sarah and I also sponsor children through Compassion International. And we support ministry staff to college students through parachurch ministry. I have a, a mentor and a friend of mine who is black and a part of our support Part of our tithe goes to support his family as he's pursuing his PhD in ministry so that he can teach and train other black pastors. These are, this is work that advances the kingdom of God. Now, some of you might be sitting here incredulous thinking like, how can you expect me to give 10% of my income like I feel like I'm barely making ends meet? As I said a few times, giving is not easy. It is a discipline. Tim Keller, in his book on marriage, says that anything that is worth doing is not easy. To write the greatest American novel takes heart. To run a marathon takes months of training. To achieve mastery in your hobbies, experts suggest, requires 10,000 hours of practice. Giving is no different. Right? You couldn't get off your couch this week and decide to run 26.2 miles. I, you couldn't do it. I mean, unless you're like in marathon shape year-round. You've got to start somewhere, though. You've got to start. You start with one mile. Maybe the next week you run two miles and so on and so forth. And so giving is just like that. If giving is new to you, maybe your goal is just to start giving 2% of your income next year. And then the year after that, up it to 3%, 4%. You know, maybe you've been giving for some time, but this is a, another chance to take a look at your spending habits. Okay. Maybe you were giving 10% two years ago, but after a few raises at your company, you need to reevaluate how much you're giving. I don't believe that God's blessing in our lives is conditional upon our giving. We can't earn God's love through our giving, and we can't lose it by withholding our finances. We have been saved. We have that identity of Jesus Christ that we're founded upon. 
But the Bible does seem to showcase that God will reward those who are faithful to him with their gifts. Remember that Malachi passage, Malachi 3.8? Talked about man robbing God because we're not giving our tithes and, and offerings. Malachi 3.10 follows it up this way. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Again, I don't want us to make a formula. It's not like, you know, God's going to provide for us. But we don't want to use passages like this to try to manipulate God. We don't give to manipulate God. We don't try to force his hand to bless us by giving. We can't bribe God. But by giving, we join in the insurrection of God to this culture of consumerism that we live in. We stand steadfast on the truth that God loves us more than the sparrow, loves us more than the lily, and he's going to care for us. Please pray with me, and then I'm going to have us, I'm going to benedict us out of here, because I went a little long. Lord, thank you for your grace this morning to teach a subject that is very uncomfortable to talk about in our present culture and age. I pray that your Holy Spirit infused whatever I said to to communicate your truth. Lord, you don't need our resources. You are not lacking because we don't have, we don't give. But you invite us to give, to join in what you're doing in this world to see your kingdom revealed, to see our hearts transformed, to trust you as our provider. Lord, give us gratitude for the things that we have. Allow us to live a a more simplistic life so that there are resources available to bless you. Lord, may you continue to surround us with your love and be a blessing to us. Pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.